Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Al D. This is a show designed for aspiring current and former MBAs looking for advice on how you can grow your career through an MBA degree. During each episode, I'll talk to MBA students, graduates, and leaders about the MBA experience, navigating the workplace, and career development so you can learn how to develop and achieve your own version of career success through an MBA and beyond. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. I have a special treat today in that I have a crossover episode. I am bringing an episode for my other podcast, The Edge of Work, into the MBA Insider feed. This episode features Christina Wallace, who is the author of The Portfolio Life, a new book about how to think about career growth within the context of your life and fit for today's modern world of work. If you recognize Christina's name, she's been on the MBA Insider podcast before, and she is a professor at Harvard Business School. If you're someone who is wondering, how do I fit all of these passions and interests into my career while still being able to navigate some semblance of work-life integration? Well, then this is a great podcast for you. Take a listen to my interview with Christina. And if this sounds interesting, make sure to check out my other podcast, The Edge of Work, which gives you new ideas and insights about how leaders can create a better world of work. But I hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure to listen in. All right, Christina, it's so great to have you here. And I always love starting my podcast off with a warm-up question. And Christina, my question to you, and I feel like it's timely because of the nature of your book, but my warm-up question to you is, what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience? Ah, first job. There's a lot of ways you can actually categorize a first job, right? So like technically my first job was probably babysitting when I was 12. And now I have children. I'm like, why would anyone leave their children with a 12-year-old? That sounds preposterous. My first job that I got paid to, I think I was selling shoes at Sears. I was their top salesperson. I was, it was a summer gig between like junior and senior year. And, and I had never, I didn't know anything about selling. I didn't know anything about retail, but I love shoes. And, and so I sold shoes and it was on commission. And, uh, and I guess I learned a ton about sales in that early job, but you never come back from the back room empty handed, right? If you don't have the style or the size they asked for, you bring them something else. And I felt like I talked a number of people out of buying really ugly shoes and doing something slightly better. Anyway, I had a great three months. I made a ton of money and they tried to promote me to lawn and garden where you get a much higher commission. But I was like, I got to go back to high school. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks. (laughs) But I remember this so clearly because that was the same summer. I went to boarding school in high school, so I didn't learn to drive during the school year. And so I was taking driver's ed at Sears <laughs> at the same time that I was working at Sears. And I kept running into my coworkers on the days that I wasn't scheduled. They're like, why are you here? I was like, oh, I'm taking driver's ed. And they're like, wait, how, how old are you? <laughs> I was like, I'm 16. <laughs> this is great because you're talking about two things that I haven't thought about in a while. One is Sears and the other is driver's <laughs> ed. It was, it was a fun, fun summer. I think the next summer I like stepped it up a notch and was a waitress. I, honestly, everyone should spend at least one job in, in retail sales and one job in the service sector as a, a waitress or a bartender or something. I feel like you learn so much about people, about a work ethic, and about not to treat those people terribly in the future because those jobs are freaking hard. They are. They absolutely are. So I have heard you describe yourself as 
a quote-unquote human Venn diagram. I'm ask, <laughs> I want to ask this question within the context of normally I ask people who they are and what they do, but I, I feel like this will actually answer it. Could you maybe share a little bit about what is a human Venn diagram and how does that <laughs> manifest itself for you? Sure. So I came up with this phrase. I will admit I was a little tipsy when I came up with it. I was I was struggling to describe who I was and what I brought to the table. So it's like the year I was building my first company and I was like, look, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a lot of things in like a flaky sense or like a dilettante sense. I'm a lot of things in a really strategic sense. I live in a couple of different worlds and I bring skills and networks and experiences from those different worlds to the table in a way that's like interdisciplinary and really powerful. So I was trying to figure out how to explain that in, you know, one line. Because I kept meeting all these investors and other people who wanted to help me with my startup. But if I couldn't tell them who I was, they got really bored and would move on to the next person. And one night I was just a little tipsy. I was a math nerd, am a math nerd. And so I like to describe things in terms of math anyway. And I just, it came to me. It was like my third glass of rosé. I'm a human Venn diagram. And I've built a career at the intersection of business technology and the arts. And, and it just worked. The person I was talking to was like lit up and they're like, oh, so you're interdisciplinary. Tell me more, which is the entire point of an intro, right? You just want to get to tell me more so you can have a conversation. And so for me, a human Venn diagram, it really just, it is what it says on the tin. Like it tells you that I, I am multiple things that intersect. This is intentional by choice and Hopefully I'll share a little bit about what are the elements of that Venn diagram, business technology arts, so that you have a better sense of what I bring to the table. But at a higher level, it also tells you that I'm being really thoughtful about how and why I'm putting these worlds together. And this isn't me not being able to focus. <laughs> this isn't me just dabbling. This is who I am on purpose. So since that time, it's clear you've been able to go on to do a lot of diverse things that really do align with those three buckets in terms of being a podcast host, being an entrepreneur, working in venture capital, being an instructor and teacher at a business school. And now you are the author of your next book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. So it's clear to me that you have lived out this idea of a human Venn diagram, so much so that you've decided to write a book about it. But suspending maybe <laughs> yourself for a second, how did this idea come to life in the form of a book? And what were you noticing or what were you seeing outside of just yourself in terms of why it's so important or this concept really is so important and why it really resonates given the nature of the world of work we are in today? Yeah, it's interesting. How did this become a book? I have written a number of these ideas in other formats. I had a column for Forbes for quite a few years. I've guest written for a number of other outlets. I've given some TED Talks and I have seeded these ideas in a number of places for six, seven, eight years. And what's interesting about that approach, it's the opposite of how you normally think of a book getting written, right? Someone writes the book and then they might excerpt it places. I did it in the inverse, put some of these ideas out. And then I saw which ones resonated, which ones people wanted to engage with and asked follow-up questions on or, or wanted the tools for. I wrote a, a blog post for Forbes on the 
balance scorecard, the personal balance scorecard. And to this day, I like posted like a Google spreadsheet link of my example, my template. To this day, like six, seven years later, I get requests from people asking me to share that linked with them and make it something that they can edit like dozens a week. Just people are continuing to find it and engage with it and want this tool. And so a part of this was I kept seeing how these ideas were resonating. And my agent was like, what's your next book? I previously wrote a book about innovation in the corporate world. And I was like, well, this is a slightly different topic, but I, I think there's a book here. I think there's a way that we can pull these ideas together and crucially kind of give this approach to careers a name. One of the most powerful things you can do is name something because it gives it legitimacy and it allows it to be communicated clearly and spread. And I think one of the things that I kept hearing from folks as they were resonating with these little snippets of this work was, ah, this is who I am. And I was looking for someone to give me permission to do this. And, and I think it just, it frees up a number of people who have been feeling this tension. You ask, what are the trends around careers and the future of work? This tension tied with this opportunity. The tension is, I don't necessarily want to go all in on a, like a linear career path because the world is getting disrupted every five to seven years. There's a financial crisis. There's a pandemic. There's one thing after another. The entire tech world goes into layoffs all of a sudden, right? Like one thing after another, and you're constantly feeling like your rug is getting pulled out from under you. So it doesn't really feel safe to go all in on something. This idea of diversification as a way of future-proofing feels more logical, more rational. And at the same time, that's the tension. The opportunity is, I also don't want to just be one thing. There's sort of false idea of a career path that really only came to light in like the industrial revolution, this idea of being a cog in a wheel, pick one thing, become an expert at it and do only that thing for your entire life. That was never true for society until we had basically the assembly line and the way that we routinized work that came out of that um, that shift. And so there's this real opportunity for folks saying, I have a lot of interests. I have a lot of skills. I'm going to go through chapters of my life where I might want a very different relationship with work for this season. And a linear anything doesn't fit that. And so it's this, it's this opportunity to say, hey, there's, the world doesn't work like this. And we don't want it to work like this. So let's rewrite the rules. I think the point you made about language is, is really powerful and really critical and important. One of the observations that I've made is that there is a really big opportunity for more language in mental models and ideas mm -hmm. out careers and work. Because for so long, as you mentioned, we kind of have really only had a few. And mm -hmm. I think part of what resonates, at least when I hear some of the things that you're talking about and with the portfolio life is that it is just much more realistic of what exists in today's modern workplace. It's just we just haven't really had the language for it, which makes it hard for us to feel the permission to lean into it. And mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons why that is, is because I think that we, as, as you pointed out, many, even though we live in a new world, we're still very much looking at 
the mental models and maps of the industrial revolution, which I think mm -hmm. you actually start the book off with kind of really explaining the history of work at a very, mm -hmm. very fast and high level, because it's a very <laughs> broad topic. But I actually think that might be a helpful place to continue this conversation without going too in depth. Could you just maybe share a little bit about how we got here in terms of the, these ideas of the production line and these ideas mm -hmm. in terms of having a standardization and how that honestly morphed into how we so in some cases, educate people, how we ask them to pick majors, how we ask them to pick a function or an industry, and why something like the portfolio life is a really great opportunity to rethink some of that. Sure. So <laughs> I start with this whole kind of history of work because I, I had this moment in my teenage and my college years where people kept asking me, like, what are you going to do? When are you going to focus? And finally, one day in my like very flippant adolescent tone said like why do I have to focus Leonardo da Vinci never had to focus which of course is okay but you're not Leonardo da Vinci fair fair true but here's the thing right so back in the renaissance we had this this notion that people could be all of these different things and we saw i mean this is literally how the renaissance came to be this rebirth of ideas because people could study the sciences, the arts, theology, the world around them, and they could kind of slam these ideas up next to each other. And there wasn't this, this expectation of specialization. And that was true from the 1600s, 1700s, through this agrarian economy, the artisan economy, this idea where you might have a thing that you do, I don't know, basket weaving, but you also grow your own crops. You mend your garments. You have to maintain a life with your family, your home, your community. So people had to develop lots of different skills and be able to play lots of different roles within the community. And it really wasn't until the Industrial Revolution when folks moved to cities and they started getting jobs on in manufacturing settings where we wanted them to do just one thing. There was this was at the same era of professionalized management where we start we saw the MBA come into existence in the early 1900s where suddenly it wasn't just hand off your company to your son it was no let's bring in someone who is specialized and studied these best practices in management and those best practices were separate out the work make it clearly defined, really rigid, really thick, and then hire exactly the right person for that specific task. You put the strong people to carry the heavy packages and you get the, the dexterous people to man the assembly line. And, and, and you basically boil people down to one skill, one piece of work. And my grandfather felt this innately. He worked on the assembly line of General Motors for over 40 years. And he did that thing that is the most sizable fact that I have about this man who lived a huge, long life and did many things. And yet that was his identity in a professional sense. So that was a big focus through the early 1900s into the middle 1900s. And then see globalization of commerce and we start seeing the professional services come into the forefront. And now we're seeing that specialization move out of just the blue collar work into white collar work as well where we want you to pick a major, study that thing, become an expert, and now work your way up that corporate ladder through middle management and maybe make it to the top if you're lucky. But again, have one very specific skill or, or path and follow that through to completion. And it worked because industries changed on a 
20, 30, 40 year cycle. And these sort of external forces within within the economy were not like throwing everything into a tailspin every five to 10 years. But as we get into the information age and the information economy as, as we are heading now, it requires a very different approach to creation. I think like the last six months with chat GPT and AI just absolutely booming this realization of knowing a fact base is no longer grounds for employment. Like we can outsource that to computers now. It's the connecting of ideas. It's the interpretation of and improvement on things that can be generated by AI that is going to actually still be a thing worthy of adding to the economy. Like there is a synthesis that is required to really keep going. It's not just about the menial work or the hours that you could put in before. And so we're going to see a real shift in the types of skills and experiences that we value. And in my mind, that requires a portfolio approach to careers, to education, and to networking, because that is what's going to keep you in the intersection of how things connect. That synthesis is the work to be done. Something that I think about as you're explaining this is this idea of the difference between something that is complicated and something that is complex. Mm -hmm. And for those of who are not as familiar with this, the idea about something that's complicated is that it's hard to solve, but it's ultimately something that's knowable. It, it might be hard mm -hmm. to build a watch or build a house, but ultimately we have systems and people and processes that if we just work hard enough and we just follow enough of the steps, we can build that watch or we can build that house. And heck, we might even be able to improve the way that we do that a little bit on the margins here and there. But something that's complex is, is a little bit different. It's because it's hard to control and it's hard to predict. And mm -hmm. the way that you solve something that is complex isn't through analysis or following a set of repeatable steps. It's being able to synthesize. It's being able to explore. It's being able to be curious and explore through until you get to ideas or opportunities and to test and learn and grow. And I think about that in the context of that is the environment that many businesses have to operate in today, right? But if businesses have to operate that, people, the people within those businesses also are operating in those conditions. And that's where I see something like the, this idea of a portfolio life being really valuable. Uh, mm -hmm. Does that resonate at all? Or does that... For what, sure. Because I, I think this idea that like judgment, right? Judgment mm -hmm. is where complexity really comes to the fore when you can't just follow an algorithm you have to make a call. Yeah. And that's where we still need humans. And we will forever. Right. And so the question is like, how can you, through your training, through the work that you choose to pursue, how can you constantly make sure that you are in positions where you can and should be able to use judgment to inform the work that's being done? Because you're exactly right. Like it's complicated. Eventually, we're gonna we're gonna have systems to solve. And they might even solve it better than we did. <laughs> but things that are complex that require synthesis and judgment, they're always going to need people. I know I already asked you to explain what the human Venn diagram was, but now I want to give you a chance to explain the thinking and the framework around the portfolio life and maybe make it real in the sense of how might someone who is thinking about how do I want to 
grow my career or how do I want to evolve in the workplace? How can they bring the portfolio life to life for them? Sure. So the portfolio life, it comes from this idea, right, of a portfolio. I learned this in my finance classes and my MBA program, this idea that you can assemble a collection of assets that you give certain allocations to. And this is strategic, this idea that I'm going to put this much money into stocks, I'm going to put that percent into bonds, I'm going to keep this amount in cash, and they each have a different purpose. Stocks are intended to be risky, but they have high growth. Bonds are less risky, but still have some sort of dividends that are being thrown off. Cash, not returning a ton, but really liquid. So it plays a specific role in your portfolio. And then ultimately, whatever those allocations are, whatever those assets provide to you, that assembly, that makeup of your portfolio is intended to then be rebalanced at different points in your life when you need different things. So I was like, okay, we all think about work as like the biggest thing that we do. And for many of us, it really is. You spend more hours at work than you spend with your family or sleep or doing basically anything else. But work is not our entire lives. Work is a really big part of our portfolio, but it's one piece. And so being thoughtful about, okay, if I think about, this is why I called it the portfolio life and not the portfolio career, because I want this to be bigger than just what we get paid to do. So work is a big part of it. And you might think about what does work give me in terms of meeting my needs, but also meeting my wishes, my wants, like what do I aspire to be? What do I care about? What do I want to leave in the world? And which of those things am I able to accomplish through my paid work. That's awesome. Now we have a good understanding of what it gives you and what you're able to do with it. Now, think broadly about what are all the other things that maybe work isn't meeting. Maybe it's offering you the money you need to pay your bills and the health insurance and the stability, maybe the flexibility. You've got great predictable hours, but it's not giving you growth. Okay, so maybe this is a conversation you have with your manager. And maybe this is an opportunity to add growth into your portfolio through something else. Is this a class you take? Is this a hobby that you go and pursue more, more seriously? Is this something you monetize, moonlighting in a small business capacity or a consulting capacity? Is this something that you decide, hey, right now it's going to be a really minor allocation. This is something that's new that I'm thinking about, but I have an inkling that this might become a major part part of my portfolio later on. So I'm going to de-risk this. I'm not going to quit my job and go learn to code. I'm going to learn to code while I'm still doing my job. And then as I start building new apps and I'm thinking about projects and I'm networking within the software engineering world, at some point, I feel like I'm going to be able to shift that and go and make that my big work allocation. So it's how can you think about the role that each of these things play in your portfolio, what it gives you, what it helps you meet, in terms of your needs and your wants? And crucially, when should you rebalance? And how do you think about what that shift looks like? And this is not just about work and hobbies. This also includes relationships, rest, personal care. I went through a really big rebalancing of my portfolio when I had kids three or four years ago. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I spend a lot of my portfolio, my time, my energy, my money, a lot of time goes into my kids. And so I had to really rebalance. 
how much space I had left for other pieces of my portfolio. Hey there, it's Al. And thanks so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm loving doing this show, and I hope you're enjoying it too. If you're enjoying this episode, I would really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to leave a review and rate this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or simply share it on social media or send it to a friend. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. So one of the things as you talk about your own portfolio that's clear to me is that it sounds like you have a good sense and confidence of not only what elements are in your portfolio, but the things within those elements that are important to you. And I'm definitely someone who is really big on self-reflection and self-awareness. And so I know for myself, I, I definitely have a good sense of that. But I also know that even if people do like this idea of the portfolio life, figuring out what those elements are or what those pillars are, and maybe even some of those sub-elements, if you will, uh, might be a little mm -hmm. bit difficult to really hone in on. And so I mean, some of the ones might be seem more obvious, as you mentioned, you know, when you have a kid, obviously that puts something that's front and center. But for the folks out there who are in this mindset of this really makes sense to me, but I really mm -hmm. struggle with identifying those elements or those self elements, any thoughts or advice or ideas around how they can start to zero in on that other than just knowing what those things are? <laughs> Absolutely. So I wanted this book to basically feel like you were spending a weekend with me. I wanted it to be super actionable and super hands-on. So the entire middle section is like post-it central. <laughs> I should have invested in post-its before I launched this thing. So it, there's a lot of, of exercises and a process you can follow, but I'll give you the high level thing around it, which some of this just requires carving out the time and the space to to have those reflections and i start with your wishes starting with understanding like what are your big dreams and goals and wishes for your life and not just your career but your life what do you hope to accomplish what sort of impact do you want to leave behind what adventures do you want to go on just having a hundred wishes it you start it's easy to write like 10 or 20 or maybe 30 and then you're like okay do I, do I want other things? And that forces you to really mine the depths of maybe things that you wanted when you were younger that you have written off as unserious or unrealistic, big, hairy, audacious goals that just feel maybe a little too ridiculous to write down. You put them down too. And so we start with what do you want? And then the next step is what do you need? And that's where I really push you to be thoughtful about not just I need enough money. Okay, what is enough money? What What is that amount that makes you feel comfortable and confident, but still gives you that flexibility that you can go and do other things? What else do you need to be your best self? One of the things that I learned early on is I need control of my calendar. I don't mind working hard. I'll work seven days a week, but I want to do it on my terms. So being in like a client service role is never going to be a good fit for me. So really having that, that opportunity to reflect on when have I been the most effective? When have I been the happiest? What are those elements? Do I need creative community that I get to, to be inspired by every day? Or do I prefer some solitude? Do I like having that ability to close the door and be able to have some quiet space? Do I like being in roles where I constantly feel challenged? Or do I like to be in opportunities where like, I know I am rocking it. I am amazing at this job every single day and I am like killing it. Those are very different mindsets. 
and neither is right, but you have to figure out which one is the right one for you. So you start with some self-reflection and a whole lot of post-its, and then you can back solve your way into which of these wants and needs is my current de facto portfolio meeting and which ones might I need to go in and rebalance to make sure that I can address. On that notion, I think the rebalancing piece is another thing that I, I find really interesting and compelling. And if we think again about this idea of the traditional model for employment as well as career progression, it is that traditional up and to the right, you just keep marching. We, I think we know at this point if that there are times when you might want to start and stop. There are times when you might want to accelerate and go fast. There are times when you mm -hmm. may need to stop on a dime. And what I think is really interesting is this idea of rebalancing and at any given point in your life, figuring out what at the core, what is your relationship with work or your career right now in this moment, but also how might you change or not want to change that to reflect the current realities. And I know that you talked a little bit about this in the book, just with the idea around freelancing or people who go off mm -hmm. on your own, but how do you suss out or tease out the ability to kind of rebalance and make your work and career work with you with the other reality that there are some people who this works a lot better for. And usually it's because they either have a partner who has health insurance or maybe a very specialized skill that enables them perhaps maybe to rebalance where they don't have to work full time. But how can mm -hmm. you make this idea of rebalancing come to life fully knowing that there are some realities of where we are in the work world today, at least in the United States, that sometimes can make this difficult for some people? For sure. I mean, there's a big recognition of privilege in a lot of work period, right? This is a system that was built to work for certain people and not for a whole bunch of other people. And so any conversation has to start there. I, I do think there are some things that you can do though, right? So one of them is this notion that not everything has to be on or off, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. and to your point, the like up and to the right trajectory really only works for people who don't have children right. <laughs> or people yeah. who are not child bearers themselves. Typically, this is men. Even when men have children, their partners have the child and they continue to march up and to the right. And it doesn't affect their employment. But we see that it does absolutely affect those who carry and take care of the children. And the on or the off dichotomy just doesn't work. And so this notion that you can rebalance it is again, it's a little bit of like, I'm just naming something that people are already doing. And in some ways, trying to reframe it so it doesn't feel at, like a failure, right? The choice to rebalance is a choice. And it's not a, I have failed at this up into the right world. And this is as much for the individual as it is for employers who I really make a strong push that they start to recognize and take account experiences that might not show up on a resume, lived experiences that, that are relevant if you're doing caregiving work, if you're choosing to be part-time or consult rather than a full-time role to not suddenly mark this down as a gap in the resume, a sabbatical, right? All of these things are important parts of, of what we do and what we need to make it through the, this journey, like up and to the right, never worked. So part of it is just naming what is happening. But to your point of how do you actually pull this off? There's a couple of different business models that I share in the book, but one of the biggest ones that I really appreciate is the good enough job. Yep. That sometimes 
what you really need is a good enough job that gives you those bare bones things that you can't walk away from. You can't walk away from having health insurance. You need a basic income that covers, right? If you don't have a partner that can provide for you, you've got to pull that off. Like, that's great. So look for the good enough job. Like Einstein was a patent officer in the Swiss patent, right? Like it was boring and he loved it. It was perfect. It was good enough so that he could have all of his free time and not just his time, but his mental capacity, his emotional capacity was unchallenged by this job. And that left him enough of himself to go and make all the physics that we now know that he was thinking up in his free time. So being really appreciative of a good enough job that gives you the things you need to make space for all the other stuff, whether it's a caregiving role, whether that's working on a new business idea that you can't just quit your job and go all in and not have a salary for two or three or four years on, whether that's just something that you need as like a tether. You see this sometimes in retirement, where where folks say, I don't necessarily need to be the CEO of something anymore, or I don't need to be the SVP or whatever. But like, I still want a reason to get up and get dressed every day. I, I still want to interact with folks like I'm not dead yet. So you see often at that sort of last chapter where they say, maybe they go join a board, maybe they go start something, or maybe they take a good enough job. My grandfather did this after he retired from working on the assembly line after a certain number of months driving my grandmother crazy as he like tottered around the house. He got a job at Sam's Club handing out samples and like greeting folks. And he loved it. It gave him something. And that was an important thing that he needed at that phase. One of the reasons why I think this is interesting and powerful, bringing it back to the complicated versus complex analogy, is that if we take the take a career as something that is complex, we remove the need to think think in terms of binary thinking, in terms of it either has to be this or that, or it has to be this step or that step. And so I think the rebalancing, if you agree with this principle of the portfolio life, is helpful in terms of providing more expansive ideas, how mm -hmm. to have a good enough job or how to make work work for you in a particular time frame or period of life, of your life, while fully knowing mm -hmm. that you do mm -hmm. have the ability to change that as your conditions and your life changes and evolves. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, an article in the New York Times today that I just posted on LinkedIn that that talked about, like, can we stop shaming artists for having day jobs, right? That mm. there's yeah. there's value in not just having that support, but in many cases, they interview these artists and they're like, I get something out of this day job. It keeps me tethered to the world. It gives me a point of view so that when I go make my art, I have something to say. And it's not a sign of failure that I can't make it as an artist. It's an important piece of my portfolio. I love that you brought that up because you just illustrated through media the example of how there is such a lack of language and frameworks for thinking about work. Because mm -hmm. we are in 2023 and we're still wondering as journalists in society of looking at an artist and thinking that they're on some crazy path that is so far away from what reality is when in reality to the point you made people have been doing this literally for hundreds of decades or for, <laughs> for, for for centuries it's just that our yeah. model and thinking is so ingrained in the professional industrialized class that it 
is just even hard to not as a I'm not blaming any journalists in this specific case, but just our meant our, our default is just to assume that they're doing something that is heretic or that is so far from what quote unquote the normal thing people should be doing is. Absolutely. And it just it makes me want to imagine what is the portfolio version of LinkedIn? Yeah. What is there a better way yeah. to communicate, to visualize the chapters of our lives and how we mix and then rebalance what we do for each of those chapters? Like I would love to see some sort of, I don't know, interactive tool that you could like plot different points on my chronology and see the makeup of my portfolio shift over time with like annotations from me explaining like why I did this or how I cared about that. I just, I feel like there's gotta be a better way to, and isn't like every startup story start with that phrase. It's so cliche, but there has to be a better way to, to communicate our story of what we make, what we're offering the world and how those pieces inform each other. I think that's what's so fascinating about so many of these stories where you see how one piece of the portfolio actually inspires or informs or offers insight into another, which is why as we think about like employers, they should be thrilled by this model. They should be just absolutely going bonkers at the idea that their employees might have side hustles, might have hobbies or other things they're doing because it's giving them all these other inspirations and insights that they can bring to their day job. And crucially, there's research to back this up. It also means they're more willing to tolerate the crap parts of their jobs. Right. Not every job is amazing all day long. And if you want people to do those jobs, then you have to be supportive that they're going to have other things in their lives that offer them what this job is not. I'm glad you brought up the employer piece because that was the next direction I wanted to go in this conversation. I, As much as this was written, I think, for the individual and taking ownership of their mm-hmm. uh, circumstances, situations, I think that, to your point, a lot of leaders of organizations, as well as everyday people managers, could benefit a lot from the portfolio life. And I think for me, what comes up the most is that this construct that you've created help see your employees as three-dimensional beings, not yeah. not their bullet points on a resume or the degrees that they got in college. Yes. And this requires more work it does. on the yeah, part of sure. the employer. I fully recognize this, right? It takes more effort to interview and screen and recruit. It takes more effort to manage and promote, especially if you're trying to take into account other things they might be interested in bringing to the table, you might have much more of a zigzag promotion structure, right? This takes more work. But, and <laughs> I think this absolutely plays into employee well being. It makes their lives much more, not just fulfilled, but sustainable. Honestly, if you care about the long term, not just productivity, but work that you're putting out in the world, like this is what is actually going to um, to bolster and inform how your employees show up every day. And to restrict that, and I, I look at there's a number of companies that I've had folks come to me from and say, look, I want to do this, but I literally sign an employment agreement that says I, I'm not allowed to do anything on the side or anything I do on the side is they own the IP of. And and the short term advice I give to all of them is like, you have to leave like you have to go somewhere that doesn't have that perspective. 
because you're right. Like you don't want to fall afoul of your employment agreement because those lawyers are not going to take kindly to finding out you've got this thing on the side. So part of this is like employees have to vote with their feet and go toward and be excited by opportunities that don't constrain them. And then employers on the other side really have to understand how this is not detracting, but in fact, additive to what their what their team brings. So let's say that there's a people manager out there that agrees with this idea and really buys in this idea of the portfolio life. What might be your advice or guidance to that individual manager for how they might be able to work with their employees to make this come to life in a way that helps an employee get on their desired path for growth, but also helps the manager be effective in terms of their goals they have for the team or the work that needs to get done? Sure. So I think right now is actually a really great opportunity because there there are a lot of companies, especially in the tech world where I spend a lot of time and focus that are seeing layoffs, that are seeing some, some pressure from the markets. And there's a constant stream of promotions and growth opportunities is starting to slow. And there's a fear among people managers of like, how do I retain talent if I can't offer them that promotion that they're expecting? Well, one of the biggest opportunities you have is to see and really understand what growth they're looking for that might not be just about the next promotion or the next job up. So this could be something where in your conversations, you spend some time to understand like, what are the other things in your portfolio? What are industries or skills or networks that you're interested in? And is there a way that we might be able to pull some of that in? Is there a stretch assignment you could give them or a a rotation to another team? That might be really exciting and give them a chance to maybe bring that other skill set. I worked with a woman who was an administrative assistant, a classic good enough job for someone who had some aspirations of her own on the side. She wanted to build a photography business. She, she had some interest in music. And one of the things that we recognized was like she was a great photographer. She was working at a startup as an admin and their marketing team was constantly working with photographers. And so she went and had a conversation with her manager and was like, look, I would love to be considered as a photographer for the marketing team. This will be separate from my job. I will still be an admin. That's my day job. But on the side, when they want to hire photographers, I would love to be considered. And I will do that work outside of my work hours and I'll get paid for it separate from my job here. And it was a great opportunity for the team for her and for the company because they were able to retain a really talented person in a role that typically sees really high turnover. So there's, I think there's lots of opportunities as a manager to really better understand the 360 view of your employees and what they're hoping to learn or experience or go for, and then try to get creative of, is there a way that I can bring some of that into your day job, especially if I'm at a place where I can't offer a bunch of other things that typically might keep you engaged. Christina, this has been a fascinating conversation about your journey, as well as your book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. Before we wrap up here, I always have a couple quick rapid fire questions I love asking my guests. And so first question for you, what is one thing that you'd like leaders of organizations to do in order to make the workplace better for their people? I have so many. Okay, one one thing. Here's my thing. Trust that people are going to get their work done and stop requiring specific hours or places that they do the work in. If you have white-collar, knowledge economy workers, 
let them work from home, let them work at two in the morning, whatever it is that makes their lives possible, let them do it. I think so many of us realized during the pandemic that we're just a little bit happier if we can run a load of laundry in the middle of the day or take a nap or do a workout or whatever that thing is. And that's not making us less productive. Trust the people you have hired and give them the flexibility to do their jobs. On the flip side, for those that are more of an hourly work situation, the number one thing that I would love to see is visibility into your shift work. The crap that corporations have been pulling on last minute changes and expectations that their employees are just always available and always flexible is is not fair, it's not realistic, and it's not okay. So that's my one thing. It's really two things. That's okay. Maybe last question here. Who is one leader who has had an impact on your life? Clay Christensen. He was a professor of mine at business school and a mentor for a solid decade or so before before he passed. And he was the first one who introduced this idea that, at least to me, that you could take a business framework and apply it to your life. I had a class with him and he said on the very last day, he's like, I've taught you a lot of ideas and theories in this class and they will be relevant to your work. But I hope that they will be even more relevant to how you think about managing and investing in your life. And maybe that seems obvious in retrospect, but I think in that moment I was like, oh, like we can manage and measure and invest in our lives. We can be intentional about our broader lives and design them and not just feel like whatever happens is whatever happens. Like there's some intentionality. We don't have full control. There's a lot of things outside of us that we can't influence, but the stuff that we can influence, it's our responsibility to do so. And I think that really, it changed my perspective on on how much it matters to not just be a a cog (laughs) in the broader world. What a great legend to have as a leader to follow. Christina Wallace, author of The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. Thank you so much for joining the Edgework Podcast. If people want to learn more about the book or buy it or find you, where should they go and where can they find the book? You can find your book at any major retailer. You can learn more about me and the book and everything else on my website, christinawallace.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn or on Instagram if you want to see pictures of my kids, I guess, uh, at CMWalla. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.